it's hard to understand how people can still believe that this never happened. It involved 400,000 people. They'd all have to be lying, many of them still alive. Keeping a secret in this country is very hard to, to have staged the uh, six missions to the moon or seven or nine, depending on how you want to count, to have, have them all have been fakes is much harder to explain than the possibility that they were real. John Logston has little patience for conspiracy theories about the moon landings. Take my example. I was uh, at Kennedy Space Center on July the 16th, 1969. I got up early in the morning, had press credentials. I went out and watched uh, Armstrong, Aldrin and uh, Collins walk by me on the way to the launch pad. I saw the launch. You know, I, I was there. Have I been lying? For 50 years now, I don't think so. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Logston is a professor emeritus at George Washington University's Space Policy Institute. Despite his frustration, in the years after the NASA moon landings in July 1969, a whole host of conspiracy theories sprang up about the Apollo program. But why? What was it about such a momentous moment in history that caused people to cry hoax? In this, the second episode of To the Moon and Beyond, we'll be looking at what going to the moon meant for humanity. How did it change our perceptions of ourselves and our abilities? And why, in the years that followed, so many people came to doubt that NASA had ever landed on the moon at all? I'm Miriam Frankel, science editor at The Conversation UK. And I'm Martin Archer, a space plasma physicist at Queen Mary University of London. And you're listening to To the Moon and Beyond, a new global collaboration between different editions of The Conversation Around the World. I think it's uh, an experience that's not only physically different, but allows you to have a bigger picture of where we are in our universe. And no other country has undertaken a lunar landing program, basically because it's still hard, it's still very expensive, and at least is an argument of whether it's worth doing or not. My wish is that this should be an international endeavor rather than a necessary competition. Spreading across the solar system is the same thing to do. It's both a smart thing in terms of making us more resilient as a species, but I also think this is a way of opening up the potential of humanity. We have a liftoff. Liftoff on Apollo 11. So apparently when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon in 1969, an estimated half a billion people were watching. At the time, that was the largest ever TV audience. That is a lot of people. But, you know, not everybody was able to, to watch it. I remember my parents were in India at the time and none of them actually watched it. Oh, how come? Well, I mean, my mom just saw it in the newspaper. It's not that interesting. But my dad, so he's Swedish and he was studying at the University of Varanasi. He knew that the moon landings were imminent and he was really excited and wanted to, to watch it. But he couldn't find an English newspaper anywhere. So he wasn't able to follow when it was happening. 
And he was living in this hostel in the city, and there was this guy who came around to just service the typewriters. And he was like a really peculiar guy, always wearing a safari helmet. And he um, was really proud of his technological know-how. And so one day he was trying to fix a typewriter, and it was quite dark. And then there was a power outage, which happened all the time. And he went really furious. He just kind of ran outside, just clenched his fist and like raced towards the sky and went, today humans have landed on the moon, but we can't even get the lighting to work. And my dad was like, what? (laughs) So then he went and looked and looked and found some newspapers. There were all sorts of reactions in India at the time, but the one that he really remembers that stood out that was quite colorful was some religious leaders. And I think this involved the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, who tried to explain the fact that humans had put something as filthy as a foot on something as holy as the moon. And so this was a conundrum, yeah. Yeah. So basically somebody came up with the explanation that, because according to Hinduism, there is this shadow planet. It's a dog's head lurking in the solar system. And sometimes it gobbles up the moon and that causes an eclipse. So that's what it does, basically. So the explanation was that the Americans had landed as a little flea in the fur of this dog's head, and that definitely wasn't holy. So that yeah. was the explanation. Oh well, I, yeah, I, I hope they're taking that as a pure metaphor <laughs> rather than, than a dog eating the moon during uh, eclipses. <laughs> well, it, it goes to shows that, you know, thinking that the moon landings were a hoax is not purely a Western thing. Yeah. And I'm sure there's so many other stories of people trying to watch the moon landings or, or get the news and things like that, which, you know, have similar levels of drama involved yeah. as your story, Miriam. It'd actually be great to hear some of those stories. So uh, why not drop us an email, podcast at theconversation.com. You can tweet me. I'm at Martin Archer. And I'm at Miriam Frankel. We wanted to understand a bit more about the cultural reception of the moon landings in different parts of the world. So our colleague, Nomtubeku Machali, over at The Conversation Africa, sat down with somebody who remembers it well. I'm Keith Gottschalk, a political scientist from the University of the Western Cape, and I've also been following astronautics all my life. Okay, Keith, do you remember where you were when you first heard or saw footage of the moon landings? In those days, the apartheid regime banned TV, so you would have been seeing the newspaper posters tied up to all the lampposts on the road, and the SABC radio, in those days the apartheid regime banned all radios except the SABC, would have broadcast extracts and of course it would have been commented on in the news reports. Then a few weeks later, remember this is pre-internet, pre-TV, Hollywood would have flown out the newsreel films of it to all the local cinemas. So about a couple of weeks later, we would have actually seen in black and white on the cinema screen little extracts from it. So that's where the big thrill of 1969. And what was the cultural reception in South Africa to the news and the aftermath of the moon landing? Awe and sensation at the incredible engineering achievement was the big one. There was also political overtones. The the ruling white South African minority were used to seeing the USA as the world leader, the leader of the free world, the great technology and industrial leader. And so when, in 1957, the Soviet Union, that is Russia, 
had been the first to beat the Americans and launch Sputnik, that is a satellite, then the first to launch a cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, in 61, and then the first to launch a woman into space, Valentina Tereshkova, in 63. This caused a huge sensation, which the left naturally liked. This is a, a communist overtaking the West, as they'd always promised to do, and a huge shock and fear among the anti-communist dominant people in South Africa and the West. So when the USA once again came into the lead after being beaten into second place for about seven years by the Soviet Union, or that is Russia, the uh, white South Africans were, were quite excited about that. Now, we all remember that the race to go to the moon was a product of that Cold War, but sometimes you forget what the Americans winning that race actually meant for those countries on the other side. Yeah, I mean, you've got to wonder how history might have been different if the Soviet Union had won. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the, the making of a, of a great box set that you could binge. Uh, it definitely was the Americans that got there first in, in our reality, though, and they had all of the fun. I was strolling on the moon one day In a merry, merry month of December I absolutely love this clip. What you're hearing is astronauts uh, Harrison Schmidt, who was a professor and a geologist, and his commander Gene Cernan, just bouncing around on the moon surface, having a laugh. Uh, they were the last people to ever go there, though. Yeah. I mean, it's a shame. It, it must have been so cool to know that, you know, somewhere up there on the surface of the moon, you know, there were men, they were all men, obviously, yeah. just walking around, looking down at you. For that little brief window in the 1960s and early 1970s, people would have been able to do that, look at the moon in the night sky and think, oh, there's an astronaut walking on the moon right now. And then look up and think, gosh, you know, just last year or five years ago, that spacecraft landed and it's still there. This is Alice Gorman, an archaeologist and historian at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia, who specialises in space archaeology. Space archaeology? Yeah. What the hell is that? <laughs> that is a good question. Our colleague Sarah Keenehan, science editor over at The Conversation Australia, who spoke to Alice, did ask her what she does. Basically, my research is about what we can learn from these places and these spacecraft as material objects and also their heritage significance, what they actually mean for people and communities on Earth. One of the things Alice looks at is what was left behind on the moon by the astronauts of NASA's Apollo missions. And things are still turning up. Like only in May this year, a group of amateur astronomers claimed that they had located the Snoopy module. That was a lunar landing module that went all the way to the moon on Apollo 10, but then was jettisoned into space as, as part of the mission. What do we know of what has been left on the moon by humans? Is, is there a definitive list? There's a huge amount of documentation about what's been left on the moon. And one of my colleagues, Beth Laura O'Leary in, in the US, has made a catalogue of all of the objects that were left at Apollo 11. But it's amazing how much else we don't know. So there are things that have gone missing. There are things that may have gone up there that we didn't know about. 
there's part of uh, a thermal blanket that got ripped off one of the Apollo landing modules and has kind of gone walkabout. Don't know exactly where that is. So surprisingly, there are still things to be found out. And I don't believe, for example, that anyone has ever fully documented the position of all of the boot prints of the Apollo astronauts on the moon. Sarah asked Alice what she thought had been lost when NASA stopped sending crewed missions to the moon in the early 1970s. We lost a tradition. We lost the continuity of technologies and cultures that enable people to survive on other planets. So now we're kind of reinventing those again. I mean, clearly, even 50 years after the moon landings, I think most people would agree that to successfully go beyond the Earth for the first time was really a giant leap for mankind. And it's taking us to a whole new level of technological superiority, even making us feel a little bit superhuman. But what will we think in the future when, you know, people are actually living on the moon? Because Alice thinks such people may look at the Apollo sites a bit like we look at Neanderthal sites today on Earth. Neanderthals used to be seen as kind of primitive. They were crude and unkempt and culturally unsophisticated. And in recent years, as people have studied Neanderthals more, we've come to realise that they're actually our ancestors. So maybe there will be future lunar settlements who will look at those Apollo sites with wonder and awe because, like Neanderthals adapted to Ice Age Europe, living in these incredibly cold conditions with limited resources, they'll look at those sites and think, wow, they actually managed to do this. These are our ancestors. So I can see these places becoming quite important in a whole new culture and society that's built on other planets that maybe won't owe anything to Earth culture at a certain point in the future. I really like this idea of uh, the Apollo 11 sites being heritage sites for future generations. Yeah, I know. We've got so many of them here on Earth. Why shouldn't we do that when we are more established on the moon? And, you know, maybe in the future, that's what they should do for people who don't believe that the moon landings happened. You know, just send them up there, take a look at the sites. I'm I'm sure there are some cheaper options than that. (laughs) Uh, And actually, I I spoke to a psychologist who's done some research into this very question, into why people believe moon landing conspiracy theories and how you go about trying to change their mind. But before we get to that, we wanted to find out a bit more about where these conspiracy theories came from. There's just something kind of compellingly bizarre and fun but also poignant about the idea that supposedly humankind's greatest triumph was a hoax. Peter Knight is Professor of American Studies at the University of Manchester and an expert in conspiracy theories. So I asked him who first began spreading conspiracy theories about the moon landings. As far as we can tell, the first real thing that got the conspiracy theory going was a book by Bill Kazing, who uh, had worked for NASA at some point in the 50s and 60s. And he published a book in 1976 called We Never Went to the Moon, America's $30 billion Swindle. It was self-published and it turned out 
that although Kazing had worked for Rocketdyne that had supplied some of the rockets for the Apollo program, he had no detailed technical knowledge. Do we know what prompted him? No, we don't know much about um, what prompted Kazing. I think it was that sense of the general culture of conspiracy theory that was emerging in the 1970s, a, a distrust of the authorities, a sense that the government was lying to you. And Kazing used his position of someone who seemed to know what they were talking about, of an insider position, to, in his view, blow the cover. Peter explained the basic contours of the conspiracy theories. Yeah, the basic idea was that NASA couldn't fulfill Kennedy's promise to land a man safely on the moon by the end of the decade. And given that there have been lots of early failures with the rocket program, the theory is that they felt it was safer just to send astronauts into Earth orbit. So they therefore had to stage the moon landings in a film studio. And then the next component is the idea that, according to the conspiracy theorists, there are telltale signs in the official footage and other forms of evidence. And then the final component of the conspiracy theory is that NASA and all of the people who worked for them have kept the conspiracy secret ever since. Yeah, and clearly this has all been debunked. Yes, but of course, as with all conspiracy theories, uh, conspiracy theorists claim that the debunking is is not entirely uh, accurate. So the debate revolves around some of the small details, for example, the question of whether in some of the photos of the astronauts on the moon, the crosshairs which were supposedly etched into the plates of the photographic cameras are actually behind the astronauts as if the astronauts had been added in afterwards. So that's the claim from the conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. the, the, the debunking claim is that um, this only shows up on kind of second and third generation copies, not on the original version. And it's in those copies that the light begins to bleed. You get a corruption. And so it appears that the astronaut's white spacesuit is um, filling in front of the crosshairs. There's also the one about the flag. You know, we could keep going, but we won't. So I asked Peter to explain why this kind of conspiracy theory emerged in the 1970s. Yeah, the immediate context that we need to think about is the Vietnam War and a sense of disillusionment with the official version of events and, uh, in effect, the lies that Americans felt their government had been telling them. Um, you know, if we think in particular about the Pentagon Papers, these were the secret army accounts of the progress of the war that were leaked to the public in, in 1970. Or, of course, you know, if we think about Watergate, the revelations of which were coming out in 72, 73, once again, the idea that the American people felt that they were being lied to by their government. This wider distrust in authorities coincided with a shift in the way conspiracy theories operated in America. There's a long history to conspiracy theories in America. We can trace them back um, several centuries. But in the, if you go back to, say, the 1950s, the idea is that the imagined conspiracy is an external threat to the American nation, be it communism or some other kind of perceived external threat. By the time we get to the late 1960s, particularly in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, 
many people increasingly on the left rather than the right, where many conspiracy theories have tended to come from, had begun to argue that it was the American government itself that constituted a conspiracy against the people. So we get a shift from external enemies to the idea that there's an internal enemy from the Red Scare to the Fed Scare, that the federal government is is the problem. Peter said that one of the reasons why the moon landing conspiracy theories have remained so strangely sticky over time is because of the overwhelming amount of publicly available information that NASA has put out. It just invites people to, you know, do their own digging. It's a conspiracy theory that asks people to look for the telltale signs, the clues that are in the official evidence. So it's encouraging ordinary people to become detectives, to become amateur experts. And I think that that's one of the attractions of the kind of conspiracy theories that began to emerge in the late 60s, early 70s, this idea that you can become your own self-taught expert. You can become a conspiracy buff. I asked him how common belief is in conspiracy theories today and how it differs around the world. Okay, so opinion polls I would always take with a hefty dose of salt. But as far as we can tell, generally in the US, um, belief in moon landing conspiracy theories runs somewhere in the region of 5 to 10%. Probably the most accurate recent poll was a Pew survey in 2013 that suggested it was 7%. If we compare the UK, the statistics, once again, are quite confusing. It tends to be about 12%, um, although a 2018 poll claimed that 73% of 25 to 34-year-old Britons think what? that it was all a hoax. Yeah, I'm not entirely certain whether I, I trust that figure. But um, often I think what you find with these conspiracy theories, when they are asked about in an opinion poll, people say, well, you know, I don't know whether I believe it, but I don't know whether I disbelieve it either. So the yeah. opinion polls are kind of fluid. So if we look at the data from France, um, 16% of French people believe in moon landing conspiracy theories. So higher than the UK and uh, the US, hmm. 20% in Italy. But what's really telling is that a recent poll in Russia put the figure as high as 57%. Wow. And that, I think, is connected to two things. First is kind of, you know, a general scepticism about the West, but I think it's also tied more closely to the deliberate and quite cynical promotion of conspiracy theories, uh, anti-Western conspiracy theories by Putin's regime. But you might also compare, the, for example, a country like Estonia, where its belief in moon landing conspiracy theories doesn't seem to be necessarily that much higher than Western European countries. But they do believe to a much higher degree that Yuri Gagarin never went to space. These are kind of anti-Soviet or yes. anti-Russian conspiracy theories in Eastern Europe. And, you know, you get lost cosmonaut conspiracy theories, the idea that Maybe the, the U.S. moon landings did happen, but actually the Russians have been covering up many of their failed attempts to land a man on the moon. 
Ugh, it's, it really depresses me, all this. Anyway, we wanted to find out a bit more about the reasons why people might be drawn to moon landing conspiracy theories. So I sat down with one of the few psychologists who's actually run a study on this. My name is Viren Swamy. I am a professor of social psychology at Angela Ruskin University and director of the Centre for Psychological Medicine at Padana University in Malaysia. And what is your research into? So among other things, I study conspiracy theories from a psychological point of view, trying to understand why people believe in them, who believes in them, and what we can try and do to reduce belief in conspiracy theories. And you've actually done an experiment into the moon landing conspiracies, right? Yes, so we published a paper in 2013 which um, examined, firstly, who believes in the moon landing conspiracy theories and whether you can then reduce those beliefs. Uh, So we actually ran two separate studies. In the first study, we were trying to work out whether you can develop a personality profile of the person who believes in the moon landing conspiracy theory and basically the idea that uh, people, we haven't been to the moon. So what we did, we began by designing a measure of, uh, of conspiracy theories about the moon landing. So people are asked to rate their agreement with things like whether or not um, NASA faked the moon landings in order to deflect attention away from the Vietnam War, or there were some specific questions about the photographs that we developed from the moon landings, that they were all faked, or that the moon landings themselves were filmed in a Hollywood film set. So Viren asked the people in the study to rate their agreement with these statements and then correlated their scores with a range of other different things that they believed in. One of the things we looked at was belief in other conspiracy theories, whether they were likely to believe in, for example, that 9-11 was an inside job, um, whether Elvis was still alive, I think was one of them. They also rated or self-reported their degree of paranoia and suspiciousness, as well as things like New Age beliefs, whether they believed in, for example, magic and and ghosts and so on. Uh, And one of the main findings from that particular study was that people who believed in other conspiracy theories were also more likely to believe in the moon landing conspiracy theories. Yeah, so I guess that kind of makes sense from what you see in in the media. That a lot of these people do seem to believe like more than just one. Yeah, so we call that a monological belief system. Basically, when you already believe in a conspiracy or a conspiratorial worldview, when you see patterns in data and that make you believe that there are conspiracies in the world, you're more likely to adopt different conspiracy theories, even if they're sometimes contradictory or even if they don't make sense. But who are these people? Viren told me there's one school of thought which has its roots in the work of an American historian called Richard Hofstadter writing in the 1960s that people who believe in conspiracy theories suffer from some sort of psychopathology. For example, they might be extremely paranoid or they might be extremely suspicious of other people. And there is some evidence to support that. The problem with that particular view, though, is that if you try and claim that everyone who believes in a, in a conspiracy theory is somehow psychopathological, you're essentially saying that half the population in most countries are psychopathological, <laughs> which doesn't worrying. make sense. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so most of the research I've conducted starts from a slightly different perspective, which also has its roots in Hofstadter, which he basically argued that a lot of the time some populations feel alienated. They feel like they haven't got a voice. And when you're faced with something really difficult to explain, like a traumatic event or something where there are gaps in knowledge, like a terrorist attack, when you don't have all the information immediately or that event might be incredibly emotive, a conspiracy theory helps to simplify everything. It helps to reduce all the data into a very simple explanation. Now, one of the other things that conspiracy theory does, it personifies someone who's doing the evil. So suddenly you've got someone to blame. And what those both of those things does is it gives you a sense of power. So from that perspective, what you might suggest is that conspiracy theories are a rational way of trying to explain quite complex phenomena. They give people a sense of control. They give people a sense that they have 
an agency in the world. So far from suggesting that people are psychopathological, I think a more realistic view of conspiracy theories, not always, but sometimes, is that they give meaning to life in the same way that, say, religious beliefs give meaning to life. I asked Viren whether there's anything that can be done to wean people away from believing in conspiracy theories. He told me this is what the second part of his study was trying to do. Yeah, so that was the first study that we conducted. We conducted also a second study. Uh, and this study was much more experimental. So again, we asked participants to complete this measure of their belief in, in the moon landing conspiracy theory. And they were then presented with six photos of the moon landings themselves. Now, a lot of the conspiracy theories about the moon landings are based on these photos. The idea is that these photos are faked. I'll give you one example. One of the images from the NASA moon landings shows an image of an astronaut in front of the moon lander. And you can see shadows going in different directions. They're non-parallel. And the conspiracy theorists claim is that because there's only a single source of light on the moon, the sun, you can't have non-parallel shadows. So that must mean that the, the, the image was faked in a Hollywood film set where you can have lots of different uh, sources of lighting. In actual fact, there are lots of sources of light on the moon. The Earth is one. Uh, the light reflecting off the moon's surface is another. The sun Obviously, is another. because that's the reason why we see it at exactly. night. Exactly. So, <laughs> so it doesn't take very much to, yeah, to, well, to dis disprove yeah, that, does it? Yeah. All rational explanations. So what we did was we presented these images. One group of people saw just information just describing what they saw in the image. A second group got the conspiracy theory version. This image is proof that we never landed on the moon because their shadows are non-parallel. The third group saw the same conspiracy theory but also got the debunking information. And what we found was that whatever your belief to begin with, if you saw the critical information, that reduced your likelihood of believing in the conspiracy theory after. If you saw the supportive supporting the conspiracy theory, you were more likely to believe in the moon landings conspiracy theory. So what our study suggests is that simply informational framing, the way in which you present information about a particular topic or a particular object can have an influence on your belief in conspiracy theories. Viren told me that one way to combat this is to promote belief in analytical thinking. People have different preferences about how they engage with information and how they engage with, with evidence. Some people prefer an intuitive thinking style, which is much more gut-based, it's emotional, it's quick, it's a judgmental response. Other people prefer an analytical thinking style, which is much more deliberate, it takes time, you process information. I can do a quick experiment on you if you want. OK, go on then. Uh, if I asked you, so just answer this very simple question, yep. how many of each animal did Moses take onto the ark? Well, it was, it was supposed to be two of each, right? That was the, the idea, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, Moses didn't take any onto the ark. It was Noah. Oh, no, of course it wasn't. Yeah, so it was Noah. Oh. Here, because I have, you haven't got very much time to process this, this question, you're focused on the key bits of information that you're not looking at the entire question. So essentially what you were doing there is you were engaging in intuitive response style rather than an analytical one. If you had more time to kind of consider the question or if it was presented to you on paper, you might be more likely to adopt an analytical thinking style. So what we find generally is that people who prefer an analytical thinking style are less likely to believe in conspiracy theories. People who prefer an intuitive thinking style are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. I don't believe any conspiracy <laughs> theories, by the way. Now, one of the things you can do with analytical thinking style is you can promote it. Our entire higher education system is based on this idea that you can promote analytical thinking and critical thinking. And if you get people to shift from an intuitive to an analytical thinking style, what you see is experimentally you can reduce belief in conspiracy theories. Good advert for a university education there. Well, it is and it isn't. So, you know, Viren was telling me that, yes, university education gives you that critical thinking, but it's not 
accessible to everyone. So all these people who haven't had that sort of background and feeling mm. sort of disenfranchised with society, don't feel like they're getting their say. It's just shifting them further and further away. Mm. And such that there's this disconnect between so-called experts and the so-called regular people that they're just not believing scientists and, and, and experts anymore. And it's a real problem. Yeah, and wanting to believe them less and less. Exactly. You know, I asked Peter Knight whether he thought that if people go back to the moon again and land there, you know, whether that would give rise to new conspiracy theories. Oh, undoubtedly. The, the idea that you can put the jack back in the box, that um, even if somehow live on TV, uh, future moon landing was to revisit the, the site of the original moon landings and show the evidence directly to the viewers. No, that's actually um, just going to produce more conspiracy theories. God, that's just awful. And it's just going to make stuff worse. Yep. But the conspiracy theories at least don't seem to be holding back the new space race. While the last American may have left the surface of the moon back in 1972, missions from around the world have been exploring the lunar surface with robots and making key discoveries. And that's what we'll be focusing on in our next episode. But there are many, many things going on in space that have absolutely nothing to do um, with national prestige. They're about economics. They're about philanthropic activities. They're about testing new business models. So it's less of a race and more of an explosion in my view, although there are certainly uh, pieces of this explosion that are like a race. That's in episode three of To The Moon and Beyond. Uh, to make sure you don't miss this or any of the future episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find all the episodes on theconversation.com, along with more articles from academics around the world, marking the 50th anniversary of the NASA moon landings. A big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us for this episode, and thanks to our conversation colleagues, Sarah Kinihan, Oz Patel, Nontepeko Machali, Jonathan Gang, Martin LaMonica, and Zoe Jass. To the Moon and Beyond is produced by Gemma Ware and Annabel Bly. Sound editing is by Siva Thangaraja. If you like this podcast, please give us a review on Spotify or iTunes. It really does help. And if you have any questions about the series, you can get in touch via email on podcast at theconversation.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Martin Archer. And me on at Miriam Frankel. I'm Martin Archer. And I'm Miriam Frankel. And you've been listening to To the Moon and Beyond.